And welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm George Norrie Mac. Tony is the author of After the Martian Apocalypse and the Crypto Terrestrial. Since 2003, he's maintained Post-Human Blues, a blog devoted to Fortean phenomena, ufology, technology. Mac has spoken in the United States and Canada, hosted an episode of Vision TV's Supernatural Investigator, and appeared in the award-winning UFO documentary Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings. Here he is on Coast to Coast AM. Mac, how are you? I am doing quite well. Good. Good to have you with us today. Tell me about you. How'd you get involved and interested in UFOs? Must have been since you were a kid. It happens to all of us, doesn't it? Yeah, and it seems like with a lot of people, it goes back to a very young age and uh, no different with me. I can't trace it to any particular instance in my life, any particular stimulus, but uh, but yeah, it's just been there. It's just this kind of uh, ambient interest uh, as long as I can remember. You have come across some incredible uh, stories, I'm sure, and as you continue to investigate, uh, is there one in particular that has uh, just driven you wild? Driven me wild? Uh, hmm. Uh, a case that I return to again and again when I write, uh, you know, speculative essays on on the UFO occupant phenomenon is uh, the Antonio Villas-Boas case uh, from Brazil. And there have been, you know, several different interpretations about what might have happened, whether it was a hoax, uh, etc. But I'm tantalized by that case. Um, it's got some very intriguing overtones to it that uh, continue to, I, I think they're compelling. Tell me a little bit more about that case, man. It's a case in, in Brazil. Uh, a farmer um, cited an object on, I believe, three previous occasions uh, during the during the previous week, uh, one night when he was out plowing the field, the object landed. Uh, he was accosted by uh, three individuals, I believe, um, and taken aboard the landed object. And uh, ultimately, it had some sort of uh, sexual liaison with this uh, strange humanoid female inside. And the case got my attention, I suppose, because I found it rather strange that it there'd be any compatibility between species if we were dealing with uh, extraterrestrials. The case doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The case was originally censored because it was pretty sensationalistic, and uh, not even the UFO community took it seriously. It was archived by the uh, by APRO, uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately appeared in their book, uh, UFO Occupants, uh, kind of a classic read. And... Uh, but once the Hill abduction became big news, Betty and Barney Hill's abduction by apparent extraterrestrials, the uh, Villas-Boas case kind of cropped up, became acceptable, and it was acceptable to uh, to think that we might be dealing with actual occupants instead of just metallic vehicles or, or whatever. So it's, it's a neat case with neat historical overtones, and uh, I suppose one of the reasons I like it from from an academic perspective, is because it's, uh, it wasn't out there contaminating the meme, the meme pool um, like, like the Hill case has been, has been alleged to, to have done. It was just kind of quietly filed away, and people just kind of cleared their throats and, and turned away from because of the kind of, kind of embarrassing implications. Um, but look back on uh, from, from now... Uh, and looking at it in, in the context of this very complex phenomenon, uh, it, it appears to make uh, a certain degree of sense. And, and I think perhaps it sheds some light on, on what might be going on. Mac, we get so many different theories about the origin of ETs and extraterrestrials, whatever they may be. You know, we, we hear that they could be coming from other planetary systems, from other dimensions, from within this planet, 
um, that they're government, military, uh, it's a hoax. Um, and, and even some people have some religious overtones to this, claiming that they might be fallen angels or demons, for example. What do you what do you prescribe? To? Well, I think it's a combination of, of almost all those things overall. Um, uh, as far as you know, government uh, government vehicles being being tested. Uh, most UFOs are, I believe, probably IFOs. But I think there does remain a core phenomenon that uh, that warrants very uh, rigorous interest. And uh, those are the ones that I'm interested in, and those are the ones that I think I think most UFO researchers are, are interested in. And as far if we're dealing with a non-human intelligence, and I think that's I think that's the most compelling residue we're left with. Um, then I'm not sure what we're dealing with. However, uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, has enjoyed uh, quite a bit of popularity since the uh, modern inception of the UFO phenomenon in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. And we've kind of stuck with that. And uh, I guess my complaint would be that we've, that we've um, kind of reveled in the extraterrestrial hypothesis as, as the best explanation for the truly unidentified saucer sightings. And I think that's not necessarily the best case. I think as the decades have, have, have gone on, the universe has become a stranger, stranger place, uh, much more pregnant with possibility. Uh, for example, uh, just as just one example, um, the science of parallel worlds. This is now, this is now a credible cosmological subject, uh, whereas just a, a couple decades ago, it really wasn't. But now it's talked about routinely. Instead of talking about a universe, we now talk about a multiverse. So in the same, in the same kind of vein, I, I, I have to wonder if the extraterrestrial hypothesis is necessarily the best hypothesis for what we're seeing. It could very well be part of, of the mystery. We, we, we could be dealing with myriad overlapping phenomena that we attribute to the same source because it's so strange and our minds really don't know how to, how to place this in a category because we're dealing with something that seems to defy easy categorization. We don't, have, we don't even have a terminology for a lot of this stuff that we're dealing with. So we try very desperately to peg it into little convenient uh, uh, pigeonholes. But uh, I like the idea that we could be dealing with, a, with, a, with an intelligence that's indigenous to our own planet. Um, and mm. I've called this intelligence crypto-terrestrial, uh, simply for lack of a better term. And that term wasn't actually coined by me. It was coined by someone commenting on my, on my blog uh, about three years ago, I think. But uh, it, it's one of those theories that sounds very shady and, and strange, and it kind of harkens back to the, the ideas of, of Richard Shaver in the hollow earth, like you mentioned. And um, obviously this is an established fact, but I think it's an option that warrants some sort of investigation. Could we be sharing the planet with um, an intelligent non-human species that we don't know about? And could UFOs be a manifestation of this species? And um, in the and end, could, I, and I, they could have been here a long time, Mac. Exactly, they could have been here as long as long as us, or perhaps quite longer. What's the premise of after the Martian apocalypse? After the Martian apocalypse is a speculative look at Martian enigmas um, and the case for taking a serious look at them. Uh, I don't pretend to know that they are artificial or or aren't. But I think several of these formations we're looking at on the Martian surface that have been reimaged by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter look for all the world like potential archaeological sites. And I think if we saw a lot of these places on Earth, there would be no question. We would send geologists and archaeologists to check these out. 
but since they're on Mars, they're they're um, excluded from from consciousness. They're just shoved aside and and labeled as geological formations. And there's little there's little true scientific follow up. And I think that's a, a catastrophe. I think that we're dealing with something potentially quite revolutionary. And I'd like to see some furthered interest in this from the academic community, the anthropological community, even the artistic community, I think, has something to bring something to bear on this. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a fascinating subject in, in its own right. And the implications are, of course, extremely unsettling. Let's definitely get back to that uh, next hour because that is a major story. And, of course, you echo a lot of what Richard C. Hoagland, Mac, has believed for, you know, he's a number of years now. So we'll get, we'll get into that. With, with, with the UFOs, let me tell you what's the, the area that is puzzling to me and, and bothers me the most. It doesn't seem like we get to the end. We don't seem to get to the finish line with them. We have great stories. We have, in some cases, incredible eyewitness testimony. Uh, we don't have a tremendous amount of physical evidence. At least the public doesn't. You know, what government has, who knows. But will we ever get these answers, Mac? That's the thing. Will we ever get these answers to what they are? Yeah, I'm tempted to think that we're dealing with the phenomenon that deliberately masks itself and keeps one step ahead of us. Uh, it's rather like what uh, um, Chris O'Brien talked about, the, the trickster element at work. And whatever this phenomenon may be, it's, it does seem to behave like uh, like a trickster. It's something playing us along, uh, like a carrot uh, held before us, and we keep marching towards it like the, like the proverbial mule. And so, yeah, whether we will ultimately be able to understand what the UFO phenomenon is is an interesting question. Maybe, maybe that... Maybe we're not dealing with a thing in the, in the traditional in the traditional sense of the word thing. Maybe it's not a palpable puzzle with with a resolution that we can comprehend. Maybe we're dealing with something so alien, uh, so foreign to our nervous systems that we simply lack the perceptual acumen to to ever understand it. You know, we're, we could be dealing with with something far beyond our current uh, any paradigm that we that we currently have. Sure, and. But, I'm, but I think we can learn from its effects. I think we can learn from its effects on witnesses, uh, the physical evidence that you mentioned, and, the, and there is some, not as much as we'd like, but there is physical evidence uh, to provide sufficient proof that we're dealing with a physical phenomenon. It's not entirely psychological. It's not entirely hallucinatory, certainly, although those both have something to bear on the, on the uh, problem. But in any case, we're dealing with a legitimate scientific enigma, and uh, it like with the Martian anomalies I mentioned, where it's, it's embarrassing, frankly, that uh, the academic and scientific communities aren't addressing this with the rigor that I think it certainly deserves. No, if anything, they make fun of it. And... Exactly. They make fun of it and, uh, and ridicule it. But at the same time, you have people in the background who aren't as visible, and uh, they're quietly interested. So you have this invisible college element, and it's the same with Mars anomalies. So there's an interesting sociological point to this as well that uh, that needs to be exposed, it needs to be brought to the surface of you know so it sort of achieves a, a much better a much better um, showing among among the lay audience, and I think that's ultimately that's going to that's going to establish a better a better dialogue 
better scientific I, and a better... I think so, too, Mac. When we come back, let's talk more about this theory that they might be coming from within this planet. I'm George Norrie. We'll be back in just a moment on Coast to Coast AM. For just 15 cents a day, pennies, you can sign up for Streamlink and get downloading and podcasts and also the brand new feature as well. Now, special feature, the iPhone, iPod Touch. Uh, it really works wonders for Streamlink members uh, on their own mobile device. And it's also free to all users of the iPhone and I t- I for other features as well. And there's an alien game. It's Alien Abduction that one of our own listeners created, and it's incredible. So if you're interested in Streamlink, just uh, go to coasttocoastam.com. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm George Norrie, our special guest tonight, Mac Tonese. He's the author of After the Martian Apocalypse and the Crypto Terrestrials. And let's get into some of these theories. It is fascinating, Mac, to assume that these ETs are coming from within the planet. Now, you earlier talked about maybe they were extraterrestrials living within this planet. So, you know, I'm, t- I'm taking the assumption that they came here a long time ago. But what if they are just merely earthbound creatures that live there? Well, I take the, I take the standpoint that they, are, they, they evolved in conjunction with us. And, in fact, they might be human in some essential respects. Uh, so the word alien, uh, when I use the word alien to describe these, these hypothetical beings, uh, I mean that in the true sense of just other, not necessarily extraterrestrial. Uh, we tend to associate the word alien with, um, with coming from outer space. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, uh, the evidence suggests uh, a, a bipedal humanoid species uh, that's very recognizable, that even uses human-like gestures and mannerisms, and even displays a, a pretty good familiarity, familiar, excuse me, familiarity with our language. Uh, the Hill encounter, I think, is a, as the prototypical alien abduction, it's interesting to look at the, uh, the way that the mannerisms and the way that these beings behaved when they abducted these two, these two humans. And the very theatric nature, of the, the, in the, way, the very theatric way in which the, uh, the abduction unfolded, um, the, showing the star map to Betty Hill, for example, sure. having a kind of lengthy, lengthy clinical discussion with her explaining you know, what the aliens were doing here and why. Uh, when I look at these these accounts, and so not only the hills but lots of others, um, I'm, I'm struck by how unlike how unlike a genuine extraterrestrial spacefaring civilization this seems like. It seems like something closer to home. It seems like uh, again, it's, it, maybe it's that trickster element at work. But if we are dealing with uh, a palpable phenomenon, a flesh and blood species. Is it, is it inconceivable that we're dealing with something that evolved right here on Earth and lives among us? And I realize it's an extremely paranoid idea, and it would seem to fly in the face of, of anthropology and, and evolution as we know it. But, uh, and that's, I guess that's kind of the challenge I present in, uh, in my forthcoming book, The Crypto-Terrestrials, is, uh, is, is this something that's potentially testable? You know, could there be uh, some sort of remnant species um, that survives on this planet and hides its own existence. And I think a very thorough reading of the UFO literature suggests that there might be something to this idea. Maybe not. Maybe it is extraterrestrials. Maybe it's something even weirder. Maybe it's um, some, sort of, some form of symbiosis with beings from another dimension, whatever that might entail. But I think that the idea that we're dealing with um, humanoid beings, uh, physical 
physical beings that are alien, uh, but nonetheless terrestrial, uh, deserves some attention that it really hasn't gotten. Some authors have touched on it, Jacques Vallée certainly, John Keel right. uh, in his ultra-terrestrials, and uh, those are both very useful starting points, but perhaps we need to dig a little deeper. Well, Vallée calls them messengers of deception, uh, and he has changed over the years. You know, uh, a long time, or even that movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind that was based somewhat on his his experience, the Frenchman playing his part, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, he's changed. He, he, he no longer believes that they're ETs from other planetary systems, that, that they are messengers of deception. When he first began researching UFOs, he was reasonably confident that the mystery would be solved, that they'd start looking at cases, and they would probably find that it was an extraterrestrial invasion. I'm using the word invasion. I don't mean that it's alarmist, (laughs) but that we were dealing with visiting extraterrestrials. And he thought that was a a good hypothesis, and that might be borne out by a a sophisticated study. But uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, Like you mentioned, this phenomenon seems to be deliberately elusive. It keeps keeps evading us one way or another uh, to the point where it looks like we're never going to solve this. And that's led to... Well, the exopolitics movement, that's led to this notion that if we keep asking the government, the government will unveil the truth. Well, certainly the government knows some things about the, about the UFO phenomena that it's not um, revealing openly, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it knows what's going on. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's someone who knows the entire picture. I could be wrong on that. Part of me kind of wishes I was wrong on that, but I don't, I don't buy into that rather X-Files vision of the government as this monolithic entity that is hiding the truth in a warehouse a la um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. You know, I had an opportunity uh, this weekend to watch The Mist, Stephen King's Mist. Excellent movie. And it is a great movie. And, you know, I, I like to wait until they come out on DVD or they hit the big screen at the big screen for your house. And uh, so I don't go to the movies a lot. But it, 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 was, it was a movie that also makes you think. There was an area within the movie, Mac, where they talked about how scientists were playing around and experimenting, and they opened up a window, a portal, and these creatures came through. And is that conceivable with what we're seeing today? Some well, kind of a portal is open. Then they come maybe through. that's why they shut down the LHC. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I don't Good think point. it's I don't it's uh, it's a fun notion to play with, and uh, I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> I think uh, we're making like the, the whole idea of parallel universes. Um, where that's become that's becoming a commonly used term, um, thanks to string theory and other efforts like that. Uh, the idea of a multiverse that we exist simultaneously with like soap bubbles within soap bubbles connected to other soap bubbles, and these are all uni- individual universes that are constantly merging. This has become a, a rather uh, cut and dry, well, not cut and dry, but it's become a rather commonplace uh, thing to talk about, whereas only just a few years ago it would have sounded ludicrous. So while there might be some reality behind what they're talking about, I don't think that we have the, the energy, number one, to open up a, a portal into another, another universe. But I guess that doesn't mean that someone else hasn't. Uh, you know, one, one ex- possible explanation for the UFO phenomenon would be that uh, maybe uh, our brothers and sisters or our future selves in some other, in some other world have developed a technology that allows them to uh, open a window and, and come through. And that's not without some appeal. I'm not sure if it explains everything, but uh, 
certainly if we, if we were able to locate uh, a single point, if there is indeed just one window open, uh, that would certainly go a long way towards explaining this. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to, to uh, go into that window? Wouldn't it be fun to plunge headfirst into that? As long as you can come back. Visit their other world, yeah, and then come back and, and report back, kind of like uh, the scenario in Contact with Jodie Foster. The descriptions of these ETs come in an incredible variety. We, we hear the greys, praying mantis-type looking creatures, Nordiques, they look like us. Um, you know, they have the same physical structure. Then we have reptilians. What's your take on what they might look like? My take is that these beings, the gray serves as a useful template for looking at all of them. Uh, reading old accounts of occupants before the gray alien became the consumer archetype that it is now, you still find accounts of beings that are tantalizingly like the grays. Uh, the woman encountered by Antonio Villas Boas that I mentioned, uh, if you take away her hair, uh, she would look very much like the being on the cover of Willie Strieber's Communion. Uh, she had large eyes. They weren't black, but they were nonetheless large, uh, very minimal nose and a slit-like mouth with no lips. And that's a very strange detail for someone to come up with if they were describing um, a sexy female figure, uh, which, which some skeptics have, have, uh, have uh, accused Viaspoas of doing. So that's just one. There are others, you know, being seen by the roadside that have this certain, this certain character where you read it now looking back on, you know, decades now of, uh, of watching gray-like aliens being the expected alien. You know, when you see a flying saucer on television, the mental image is that it's filled with these little spindly, gray, big-headed, big-eyed aliens. That's just become what we expect. But uh, it's not necessarily uh, a modern phenomenon to expect aliens to look like this. Um, the template, the, the, the gray anatomy seems to recur uh, going back quite a, quite a long time. And that makes me wonder if, if there is something to it, if it's more than just a metaphor or more than just, um, uh, more than just a, a kind of a science fictional caricature for something that we're not otherwise able to address. So the grays seem, there seems to be some validity to that. Now, they are very minimal, and that very minimalism makes me rather suspect that the grays are a literal interpretation of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. It could be a simplified. You know, the human mind t- tends to focus on the most prevalent um, for details. In this case, the eyes and the, the lack of a mouth and, and the very minimal nostrils and uh, the lack of, lack of sometimes clothing. They'll just the very bare, spartan appearance of these beings suggests uh, that, you know, they are, to, in a certain sense, kind of caricatures. Uh, and maybe embellished or by our, by our imaginations, but that doesn't mean that we're not seeing anything. So, I've always thought the greys were like robots. Man. Yes, they're described. Uh, well, it's strange because depending on who you speak to, some people describe them in very stridently romant, uh, robotic terms. They describe them as behaving as as machines, moving even moving in lockstep, and then other people describe them as very compassionate and very uh, warm, giving creatures, which is kind of the opposite of robotic. Um, so not having seen one personally, I couldn't offer really any particular insight on that. Other than that, there seems to be a, a more or less coherent picture of these beings, kind of a composite portrait of these beings as uh, kind of impo- impoverished, sickly, uh, frail, 
Uh, whether that means they are sickly or frail, I don't know, but they appear that way to us. Uh, one thing that I think is intriguing to note is that the greys would seem to be ideal astronauts if we are indeed dealing with entities from another planet or entities uh, that have grown to occupy very resource-scarce habitats, then this very spindly physique would be, would be quite ideal because it would entail that they don't use much, they don't eat much, that their physical demands are, are very few compared to ours. So in that sense, maybe there are robots or genetically engineered or, or bred to be like this. And that begs the question of what they want with us. If they're aliens, what good is DNA for them? I mean, you could always argue that alien anthropologists would have an inherent interest in our genetic structure because of the novelty involved. You know, if we met aliens on, on Mars, for example, we'd probably want to take DNA samples, you know, see what they were made of and, and find out if there was a common ancestry, and etc. But uh, you have all these accounts of bedroom abductions with kind of a, with kind of a sexual implication. And uh, it's, it's all rather creepy and sensationalistic, but it also begs the question that are we genetically compatible with these beings? Sure. It, it is so, bizarre. It is bizarre. No, it's absolutely bizarre. It's, uh, and, it's, and it's quite alarming. And I think there's a genuine signal in there. I think there's lots of noise, sure, but there's noise with any, with any inquiry. And uh, if we, I think we're dealing with it with a physical, something that can be physical. It might not be entirely physical. But, you know, we hear lots of accounts of, oh, they're inter interdimensional travelers. And that's an interesting idea, but what's that, what's that really mean? Throughout this entire planet, we are getting millions of people who claim to be abducted. It, 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 it's, it was coming up at a barbecue I went to this weekend. They were asking me if I believed it. And I said, I haven't experienced it. But there are a lot of people with credibility who have, you know, who have truly felt and believe that they've been abducted by these extraterrestrials or these creatures or entities, whatever they may be. And sure, some of this may be made up. Some of this may be part of the brain. Uh, some of this could be mental illness. But then there could be these cases that are actually bona fide. They're happening to these people. But it's happening worldwide, Mac. And that, to me, is, is truly incredible. Yeah, not as incredible as it would be if we lacked a global media infrastructure, but it's still fascinating. There was a case in Zimbabwe where the, where the people saw these entities, and they described them in culturally relevant terms. In other words, they didn't describe them as aliens from outer space, which is what a typical American would say after seeing these things. They described them as the ghosts of their ancestors, but yet they described the prototypical gray alien wearing silvery suits, riding in these metallic objects. So I find that very, very interesting. And a question that arises to me is, well, they described them in you know, distinctly different cultural terms. The context was different. But is one term necessarily even more valid than the other? You know, to, to us, they're extraterrestrials. To the people in Zimbabwe, they were um, spiritual entities. You know, maybe, maybe neither explanation, neither interpretation is accurate. Maybe we're dealing with something different. You know, it, it might seem naive or or whatever, even primitive to think, oh, they're, you know, the spiritual entities, ghosts of ancestors, yeah, right, whatever, they're aliens. And that's a very typical Western response, I would suppose. But um, 
you know, just because we think we have the answer, and it might seem perfectly logical, well, we're dealing with beings from another star system um, visiting us for whatever purposes, nefarious or otherwise. Um, but I think that I think this is an opportunity to look at this phenomenon in the more humbling light and uh, to recognize that perhaps we don't have the answer. Perhaps the extraterrestrial hypothesis, despite its prevalence, despite its seeming logic, and there is a certain logic to it. I mean, if we were to uh, continue exploring space, we would probably visit other planets, and eventually, like in Star Trek or a good science fiction novel, we're going to encounter another species. And I would predict that that would indeed happen if we, if we were allowed to roam the galaxy like these, like these alleged extraterrestrials seem to be able to. But, as, you, as you mentioned, though, yeah. the, big, the big case of Barney and Betty Hill seemed to push this to the forefront, put it into the light. You know, look, Magazine did a story on them, and, and it truly began to become an incredible story that so many people read about and heard about. Yet, this alien-human hybridization program seems to be ongoing. David Jacobs thinks there's something wrong here, something evil behind some of this. How about you? I don't see anything necessarily evil going on. Um, I've read Jacobs' work, and I find it fascinating, but I can't help but wonder if we're dealing with something. I, kind of, I guess I'm returning to something I said earlier, that uh, we're dealing with something that's so beyond our our, um, our neurological hardwiring, that we're unable to address it, that we're unable to perceive it. I mean, we evolved in a very um, compromised environment. Our brains are essentially uh, fancy, organic, um, um, hazard avoidance machines. You know, they're, they're made, yeah. they're, they're wired to uh, perceive patterns quickly before the person gets killed by, you know, by a marauding animal or whatever, or clubbed to death by a fellow human being. Um, and from a certain outlook, our brains are not terribly sophisticated. So what would an intelligence so beyond us look like? How would we perceive it? It might take the, it fall, into the, it fall into the basic domain of the uh, quintessential psychedelic experience. You know, and I think, there is, I think there is an interesting congruence between accounts of people who take... Uh, doses of LSD or DNA. Or magic mushrooms or anything. Or magic mushrooms like Graham Hancock has done, like Terrence McKenna has done, or Daniel Pinchbeck. And they they report back with with reports of these uh, strange bug-like creatures sometimes. Not always. But uh, here's an avenue for research. Here's something that we could possibly even test in a laboratory, and this has been done to to a limited extent. Um, But I would recommend that this would be done more aggressively. Uh, because if we are dealing with with a phenomenon that has uh, decided implications for consciousness itself, the fact that we would be able to isolate a certain chemical compound, in the case of DMT, something that's secreted naturally by the brain, uh, that's that's really exciting, you know. And if we could make some sort of breakthrough, um, and of course that's all very speculative, but but it's not entirely impossible. And uh, if there is a terrestrial connection, if we are dealing with beings that evolved right here on Earth and share the same essential chemical makeup, um, that would, I guess a question I would have is, do these beings use DMT? Uh, Are they able to access realms of reality that would seem fanciful or or even mythological to us because of uh, access to a certain chemical? So that's a question that remains unresolved. 
We'll be back. We'll talk more about this, Mac, and also we'll get into your uh, other work after the Martian apocalypse. I'm George Norrie, back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. 